Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with ECS DNA Kit by Endo Canna Health. I did this years ago and it continues to empower me to get nerdy with my cannabis choices, which you know I like. If you've watched our Cannabis Legalization News podcast, did you know that right now you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com? That's E-N-D-O-D-N-A.com and use promo code POD25. That is P-O-D, the number two, the number five. Your purchase includes the EndoDNA Collection Kit. Endo decoded report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestion, endo aligned product matching in your state, suggested dosage guidelines, and optimum methods of administration. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a BOGO offer on their Afeka soft gels lineup. Since so many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afeka Unwind created to support healthy sleep cycles using a patented proprietary formula of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are made of this. So buy one, get one, my friend. You can shop online at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at checkout to save 25% on your DNA test kit. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com What's happening, everybody? It's 420 somewhere, and today on the podcast, we have Jeffrey Trapp from Planet 13 Holdings. We're going to take a deep dive and talk all about what goes on when you're working in the legal adult use industry. Join us. Thank you for coming on the podcast, man. Of course. Thank you for having me, Tom. Yeah. Anytime. When you reached out and you said you wanted to talk, I'm like, oh, that's great. I've heard of Planet 13. I've never actually been in one of their stores, but I'd love to hear more about them and how it is to work for them. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and uh, tell people what you do for Planet 13? Of course. My name is Jeffrey Trapp. I am the National Director for Planet 13 Holdings Incorporated. Currently, right now, we operate in California. Santa Ana as our retail location, and then we have a cultivation we just acquired NGW, which is next Greenway. We have one of the largest stores, retail square footage in Las Vegas, which is now considered an entertainment complex. But not only 
over 80 registers, but also an interactive LED floor. We have orbital robots or drones, if you will. Yeah, really? A, yep. A customer facing production line where you can actually see our edibles being made on site. We also have a full, full restaurant and a full bar. So when you come into the Las Vegas location, it's, uh, we try to do a one-stop shop. It's, uh, it's pretty unique. And then we also have our sister store in Las Vegas, which is called medicine. It was our first dispensary as we started to come of age from medical to adult use, if you will. So then did planet 13 get its origin story in Nevada medical or explain, explain that a little bit. Correct. Yes. Planet 13 did start its endeavors as a company formerly called medicine. And then that was during the medical time and then transitioning to adult use. We essentially the state required that the license be switched over to yep. an adult use license. And is it a hybrid or do they say after they went legal in Nevada, did it become two programs or did they just all get consolidated into the adult use? They're still running like simultaneously adult use and medical. But what we were forecasting was Planet 13. So medicine was a more smaller traditional dispensary. We had this grand vision of a larger, more interactive, uh, I would say, property. And that's where the state required that we transition that license. As of recently, we were able to maintain our former location as well. So in Nevada, we still have our two retail locations with three of our cultivations two of our production sites, but our, our roots are in Las Vegas. Yeah. Las Vegas has a very fascinating, and I really shouldn't call it Las Vegas. Nevada is a fascinating consumption lounge license type, which is a dispensary, but uh, not just a dispensary. And, and it goes beyond what most dispensaries are. When you gave your little intro there, it sounded like maybe you guys had a similar style of license where you had a very interesting experience. Are you guys a consumption lounge? Are we able to go there and use the product and also relax? Or how does, what's Planet 13 Las Vegas like? Oh, uh, yes. So currently right now, there has been a legislation push for consumption lounges. We are currently, I've just got done finishing with our training element on that. We are still a couple months out, but I would say for sure. And again, I don't want to jinx anything, but the end of quarter three, we should have a full functioning consumption lounge on site at Planet 13 Las Vegas. So again, it would make it a one-stop shop, right? Mm -hmm. The regulations at the first pass, just like any regulations were a little bit asinine to say the least. So through it's a couple- It's like they of, don't know what they're talking about. Just a little, I like to be positive, but sometimes I'm like, who wrote this? All right. Somebody who's never used the product. Okay. Ah, why was that your first choice? They work for the department. Oh, okay. 100 percent so after working with that we just submitted and so did i believe it's around i say roughly 30 other licensees to start the consumption launch process in las vegas so that's still on the cusp currently and then for the las vegas location with that element we're also looking on building out again trying to make it make sense for a consumer because if you ever go into planet 13 las vegas it is can be a sensory overload for some people, but we try to make Vegas it in itself is sensory overload. It's par for the course. You probably just made it like to a Vegas level of, oh my gosh, am I frozen? Yes. That sucks. 
We're back. <laughs> Jeffrey Trapp from Planet 13. What were we talking about again? Oh, so Planet 13, the, uh, the entertainment complex. So currently right now, we, to your point, Vegas can be sensory overload for a lot of people. So what we also tried to do was out Vegas, Vegas. So it can be a lot, but we also try to blend it with not only good products, but also good guest interactions. So when someone is coming to Planet 13 for the first time, they come from all walks of life, whether it's someone who's been a seasoned consumer or someone who's curious. And it starts the uh, dig, I would say, destigmatizing cannabis for them, right? We have people mm -hmm. that are, they don't even walk, want to walk into the dispensary because they don't want to be in the system or the database. And then they'll end up leaving knowing about cannabinoids, terpene. So it's interesting to see uh, the many walks of life that we get to interact with on the daily. That's interesting. That uh, is that a thing as a dispensary operator? Do you see that? Do you see people are like, oh, I would go in there and buy weed, but I just don't want anybody knowing that I'm doing it. I think uh, being in the, the industry for a couple of years, I have maybe become desensitized to a lot of people's uh, cautionary or just being weary to even talk about cannabis openly. But I've actually had some family friends who are, they reside in Texas and they wanted Ooh. nothing to do with the dispensary. They didn't even want to come visit me. So it's still pretty prevalent. Sometimes you just have to talk to people if they're open to it. But some people, I would say from certain regions and certain states, they, uh, they're still not even willing to entertain the thought. Yeah, it's Texas. Their legislature meets every two years, so it goes half as fast as the rest of us. Anyway, we shouldn't talk about Texas when it's not here. Nevada's pretty interesting. I haven't been there in years. How, how does a consumption lounge then work? Like, I can just go in there, I get a table. Am I allowed to have infused foods? Because many of these regulations, when you go, you have to buy everything packed, wrapped, childproof, out the door. How do you do the consumption lounge then? So from the interpretation of the regulations and talking to other operators that are brainstorming some ideas, there is a few that are willing to partake on the infusion of the food element. The hard stipulation of that is the state wants to control any infused product, which mm -hmm. means they need to make sure it is either fully consumed. And if it's not fully consumed, it needs to be logged, recorded and wasted. Wow. Honestly, yes. Like, so, I could just see because you're done with your plate eating. Mm -hmm. like, oh, I couldn't have another bite. Great. And then they have to take it, dump it into a scale. And then after they dump it into a scale, log it as destroyed and then put it into the trash. <laughs> yeah. A few are trying to play with the infusion idea. Maybe they do it on maybe something that's smaller, maybe like some of the accoutrements or condiments. Some are also working through the regulation, which requires only single use servings, which gets very interesting mm. when you start to talk about concentrates. As a consumer, what do you consider a single use serving of concentrates? Right. For a joint, it's pretty easy. Single could probably be a half gram or a full gram. And then flour gets a little interesting as well, but it needs to be a distributor transaction in a single use item, which makes it at least just for me being a consumer myself, be very interesting if you are only allowed a joint at a time. So we're still trying to work with the uh, 
so like if you can't do it like you're at a bar you're like give me a round of shots i'm sorry sir no you're allowed a shot that's it so you would just be allowed a single serving and it doesn't have to be packaged and labeled that single serving so are we going to have like a garbage issue if you go there and like every joint needs to be packed and labeled every edible needs to be packed and labeled is it like that so again from the interpretation of the regs that's what it looks like and one of the big caveats for these consumption lounges is the opportunity from people leaving the establishment overly medicated and operating motor vehicles so very sim very close to your point i've run bars and restaurants where you can give a round of shots to someone in the regulation there's actually training required to make sure that someone is not overly intoxicated or not overserved. yep correct yeah. So it's it now takes you from being a bud tender to someone who is just being aware of how uh, how on the spectrum of just right to completely intoxicated is that guest, and when do you when do you step in as the administrator of that product? So it throws a lot of nuance elements that I think a lot of people haven't thought about. We're still trying to fine tune. We've got a first kind of version of what we forecast it looking like. But again, regulations, they always are quick to change when someone brings up, hey, this doesn't make sense operationally. So currently right now, it looks like there might be some uh, some interesting things to navigate, but things are supposed to be single surf, single serving use items. And then the staff member that's going to be working with their guests has to make sure that they're not overly intoxicated while they're consuming. So it brings on a few things that most people wouldn't have to worry about. That is, that's interesting. I'm always looking to how to, we can reduce the, and it's and not only that, when you're getting these licenses, you have to very often in, in highly regulated states like in Nevada or like in Illinois, you have to spend time, pages and effort explaining how you're going to reduce your environmental burden. And then you see regulations like this, where it's like single serving plastic, everything only. And yeah. you're like, do you have, I realize that you're a regulator, but can you at least appreciate the irony in this? And and it's one of the because I'm a big believer in deli style weed, where it is a better customer experience if you keep that cannabis together so that it can stay fresher longer. And then it also allows you, just like if you're at an ice cream factory or like in 31 flavors or something, like oh, what's that? You could also say that. Now I'm not saying you would get like a taster scoop or anything. That's getting into the consumption lounge area, but they would also have smell jars. I remember smell jars in Colorado. I haven't been there to buy in at least four years, so I don't know if they still have them. These all add to the customer experience, and then you can select the product that is the best for you. And why I don't believe that cannabis, at least the cannabis flower, is a consumer packaged good. So if deli style was available, and I'm assuming it's not in Nevada, because it's not in Illinois, is it? do you guys have deli style in Nevada? No, everything is prepackaged before it leaves a license and that is the waste problem and so now we have all this waste where if you had child proof like if i go to a brewery i can bring a growler and they can refill that growler same concept and so you could have a child proof and then you could brand it with planet 13 you could sell like eighths and halves and whatever is legal according to the limits of it and then be able to give them a higher quality product. And I just think that 
it, the whole industry would benefit because now you have the customers getting a better product and then it's also less wasteful. They're recycling while they're coming back and it brings customer loyalty. That maybe you could even give them a packaging discount because by putting that packaging on, that goes on the backs of the growers and the processors that are making the product. And so now you've, you've increased their cost to get to that, uh, that market by, it depends, like what the average packaging cost is on an eighth, a couple of bucks. I don't know. It's a new industry, man. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, kicked my camera. <laughs> well, and then also it throws a curveball because there's some states when I operated in Seattle, Washington was very on the cusp of introducing eco-friendly packaging, which was amazing. There was a few operators and brands that were really trying to hone in on that. And I thought that's such a cool and honestly, a much needed aspect of the industry. Because you walk around one of these major cities and I've been in everywhere from Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, and now Nevada. When you go to a major city that has adult use or medical cannabis, you can tell by just the litter everywhere. And it's probably one of the things that it really, it bothers me knowing that there is probably an easier way if a regulation allowed for recycling or mm -hmm. reusing jelly style, in my opinion, completely customer experience. Beat just out. to secure it, same security regulations. I'm not saying it's going to be less secure. Mm -hmm. in, in, yeah, I, I agree with you, man. And I, but the industry has, and so that's one of the things that I want to do on my website would put like links to, these are the policies that would be nice if we had these policies. If you would like some text for your state's upcoming amendments or for your state's, maybe it's your first crack at it. Maybe you're Tennessee. Give us a call, that type of stuff. It's fascinating to watch and frustrating. I guess we could talk about, you mentioned that Planet 13 has operations in more than one state. What are the complexities that make that a challenge to go from one state to the next and expand your operations as a retailer in the space? 100%. So as you're looking at some of these states, because currently right now we are in California and Nevada, we are also working on a location within Waukegan, Illinois, nice. and then also entering our footprint into Florida, which is a very interesting market as well. Just a whole different kettle of fish and like bigger fish. <laughs> yeah. And then again, Florida's the supply chain is directly from your own. It's not like you can outsource in your product. You sell what you grow, which puts a very, at least from my interpretation, a very high emphasis on a really quality product to start to finish. And uh, currently right now, that's what some of our Illinois team is working No, sorry. I misspoke. Our Florida team is working on creating the best product. So when it gets down to our retail locations for the medical patients, it's a, it's a good product to start with. Right. I think one of the hardest things in this industry is watching a lot of brands and a lot of retailers try to work with a, I would say from my aspect, a product they really don't believe in or isn't as something they would spend money on. And that really puts a lot of pressure on everyone else that's on the, the customer facing side, right? If you have a staff that doesn't really enjoy your product or they don't even like consuming, it's very tangible when they're recommending products and they're like, oh yeah, this is one of my favorites. So it makes it easy for us as one of our co-founders, his heart and soul is actually in the cultivation side. He's won multiple international 
canographic grower cups. So he really hyper focused on on a really good starting product. So that's been one of the biggest emphases emphasis, sorry, as we expand out to these other states is starting with a really good product that we can really brand from there. And then things are a little bit easier. Illinois right now, we are currently only a retail location at the moment, but we're looking to other avenues. California, we just became vertically integrated by uh, incorporating NGW, which is Next Green Wave. So now we're working with some of their genetics and some of their strains, which is phenomenal. And then Florida right now, we are working on our cultivation and production site. But again, as you look at all these states, some of the something that may work in one state may not work in another state. And you have to be able to quickly pivot. And I think a lot of people that have been in the industry pre-regulation are used to that. It's a lot of people that are getting into it now that are, this is this doesn't make any sense. And it's always reminding people that the part of cannabis that's probably the most fun for me is easily adapting and quickly to pivot to new regulations that could, depending on what state, almost change overnight. And that's uh, that's always interesting to say the least, which I'm sure you can uh, relate to as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. And then the Florida aspect of it, and it's so interesting in the sense that the administration that you have in a particular state also makes a large difference because that administration may create the prices of the fees. And so that, that was a that was a veiled Florida shade at DeSantis by creating like this million dollars where suddenly you're going to require them to pay $175,000 for the application just to apply for it. And you're going to make them pay like $175,000 easy on the application because of how complex it is and all the real estate and everything else that it requires. And then not only that, like after you've done those two things, now it gets really expensive. I'm sure you have the million dollar license fee, but now you have to go build a completely vertically integrated cannabis company. Good luck on doing that if you haven't done that before. It really is. And then you say, how many licenses are going to do? 22. Wow. So you really have to be super wealthy to even play or you have to be a corporation. So you have to have gotten wealthy people together and have capital to get in. And then after all of that, you still just want to focus on that one product that's freaking amazing to start with. And Verano did that in Illinois. And then their quality went to shit, but they had a good intro and it started well. And I recommend that to everybody, but there's a lot of pride in abilities in license holders. So I'm not sure if they would have the humility to go, I'm going to put this as our production line for our first flower because it's just ridiculously sick as opposed to because it's mine. Yep. That's fascinating. So how many more states do you think you'll be operating in in a few more years? So from our board and kind of the projection, ideally the Planet 13 model bodes well for adult use states that are heavily visited for tourism. So there are a few states that we've identified, especially ones with major sports teams, maybe a lot of foot traffic. There was a talk of also looking at Phoenix, Miami, and some other states that would probably do well. But again, with each regulation and kind of watching each state slowly come online, it's uh, it's always it's interesting to mm-hmm. see where those licenses and what the price is what you 
which you spoke to earlier, some states can come online and they can throw a price amount that makes no sense financially if you do not have the complete backing. So yeah. it's also watching where, as in Florida, we waited a little bit for it to slow down and we jumped in, which for us, it helped. But there are some states where um, just kind of looking at what's happening in the regulations, it's still probably something we would wait to kind of see where it uh, it falls. New York is one of those states I've been watching yeah. personally that is look very promising. And then as I watched a few things, I was like, oh, I would probably wait until. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, exactly. New York is Washington State. And Washington State, I'm assuming you guys don't have an operation over there. Right. but. Uh, I don't know if you do. It, they are getting at the ownership restrictions for really requiring in-state. They don't, they've never even had an application unless you're like super special. So there's not even a method to apply. And then you have to pick a side. And so if you are already vertically integrated in a different jurisdiction, New York will look at you and judge you and say no. And that creates a complexity issue that I realize you guys are a C Corp somewhere, probably Delaware, but how do you then go corporate lawyer around that restriction that they put into the, in, in everybody's way? So now you're either going to be a grower or you're going to be a seller, just like in Washington state. And it, it's made them not have any MSOs really in their jurisdiction, but then we don't really ever know of any of the Washington state brands because you can't get outside of it and it's just so strange and so i don't think that type of regulation where you have either side of the aisle even exclusive of whatever the state you're in can last into federal legalization it just doesn't make any sense in washington state they're known for wines can you imagine if they couldn't export them that's ridiculous 100 percent. yes but that's uh, cannabis yeah. And I helped actually run a shop down in Seattle, Canada West Seattle, which was one of the very first medically uh, medicinal dispensaries. And when it went adult use, they had to switch out their license. But very true to your point, those brands that are very heart and soul craft growers, it's a shame to see them only be stuck within the state of Washington because they're churning and burning within Washington. But to really make any growth happen, I've watched a few operators get really frustrated. It's just right. kind of a business model. Think about it if you're going the opposite direction. Because like if you're operating in Nevada or Chicago, you don't know about the Washington State brand. But then if you leave from Seattle to go somewhere else, you're like, do you got this? No, you don't. You don't have that. Why not? And so it hurts you twice. And so you can't get brand recognition outside. And also you can't. Has, you have upset customers when they leave your state. 100%. Cool. So let's see, how long have you been in the industry now? So oh, <laughs> officially yeah. about six or six, almost six, almost going on seven years. A long time. What got me into it actually was I was in going to college in Florida and my friend, I was consuming cannabis helping me out with a, a few things. And my friend invited me over after a couple of years of never inviting me over and uh, turned out to be a, a home grow and actually started help trimming and kind of learning a little bit about that. And it really started to put some of the understanding of what cannabis can do, not only for myself, but also watching 
because I graduated in 2009, which is the height of the opioid epidemic, which I saw a lot of friends get addicted and a few of them unfortunately lost their battle. Mm -hmm. But as the transition of that right around that 2015, 2016, watching people be able to incorporate cannabis as a alternative that actually good or in economics i call it a substitute good but then like in medicine i'm sure it has a different technical name where a doctor now has something else in their arsenal to give them for pain besides an opioid which may create a dependency that they go outside of the doctor's care for down the line 100 and then also being able to watch veterans that came back from Iraq and Afghanistan with PTSD, TBI, which is traumatic brain injury. And they also had to make a decision whether they were going to stick with Western medication or try cannabis. And again, this was 2015, 2016. A lot of them were risking their VA benefits and they actually had positive, positive success. They had a better quality of life. And I actually went to go visit some friends that were doing a California commune, commune that were some former Marine veterans and ended up learning a lot more than I thought, as opposed to I was consuming cannabis, not really understanding the benefits at the time, but it completely changed my, my whole kind of understanding of what cannabis could be. And essentially the very start of what plant medicine was in my own experience. And since then I come off to a flame, I took off and uh, been able to travel around the world or at least the United States see how each state operates, which is always very interesting, but mm -hmm. also being able to see how people are incorporating cannabis um, for a better quality of life, or at least having the opportunity to see if cannabis is right for them. Do I think it's for everybody? Right. It's not. I don't, I've met some people that cannabis hasn't helped, but it should be in your arsenal to choose if you would like to use cannabis or not. And I, I truly this believe there's a few friends that I've had. If they had cannabis, they would still be here. And that's a bold thing to say, but I truly stand by that. I think the data stands by it. So they publish this stuff. And it's so sad that the VA even updates their website to make reference about how cannabinoids work. And you're like, wow. And they do it in a very government style where they're like, this has been reported. We cannot advocate you're like stuff like that, where you're like, okay. Yeah. And then the data comes out and like after they legalize it, especially when you can treat pain medicinally with cannabis and have availability. I'm not talking about Texas style. I'm not talking about Georgia style. I'm talking about Florida style, Arkansas style, Arizona medical, the vast majority of medical styles where you can have access to the cannabis plant that does have THC in it. You see the numbers go down on opioid deaths, double digits in every state. And the data pans that out after a few years if it's been legal and that access is there and it becomes accepted and doctors might actually be talking about it. Um, I don't understand why we run our country how we do sometimes. And this is one of them. This one, when I look at that, not just the law, but also the opioid crisis and see how they interplay from cannabis. And then you're prioritizing from a policy goal. What's the policy goal of having everybody addicted to opioids? I don't get it. But that's legal. They don't have IRC 280E issues. <laughs> and I think that's the one of the biggest catalysts for me really jumping into a, a better alternative for myself. After watching so much of my friends that were 
promising athletes, really good students. Again, even friends that serve being pushed opioids. And now we're looking back at the studies where doctors were prescribing prescriptions that they knew weren't going to help, but they were just throwing it up. It really kick out the legs of trust that anyone that is now in their late twenties, early thirties. Now, most people don't even want to go to the doctor because they know it's a, a for-profit behind there. And I think that's really hard for our, a lot of us that are trying to not only live a healthy lifestyle, but also figure out, do I speak to this doctor that maybe they know what they're talking about or maybe they don't. I've had a few doctors where I've been very open about my cannabis use and I've been met from the spectrum of, yeah, that's cool. Great on you as a, how could you do that? That's terrible for you. You're going to ruin your life. And I'm like, okay, what are we doing here? This is very right. interesting. Yeah. It's not taught in medical school, which needs to change, but we'll see. There's a lot of policy and we do that podcast, Cannabis Legalization News. And it's been fascinating the past four years to see the volume and the rapidity of everything that's coming, but it doesn't mean they're getting it right. Like any state that does it, it's almost like they all are that meme of the hold my beer. And it's like a tricycle on a huge drop right before yeah. you go on, on a roller coaster. Worst idea, worst idea ever. But every state, they just like, we're going to do it this way. And then you read it and you're like, oh, this isn't bad. Or you read it and you go, this is not going to work. And when I, I juxtapose New Jersey and uh, New York with that, I look at what New Jersey did and I go, this isn't that bad. It's practical. There is a way forward for being vertically integrated. It's probably really going to come down to real estate issues and land use because municipalities are clicky. And then you read what New York's doing. You're like, this is just, isn't going to, this isn't, this is going to cause a California situation where you're going to have this illicit market. That's just fine. They're just continuing to be fine as whatever they're trying to do legally is shit show. Yeah. Yeah. But how is operating in California then? Because you don't have an op you don't really have a unless you're going to be an outlaw while licensed, which is a, a proposition I do not recommend. How is operating in California? So, if anyone that is currently operating and also watching a lot of the companies that have decided to leave California, it has its very interesting obstacles and hurdles, to say the least. Just on the taxation side was one of the few times where I was like, as a consumer, from a consumer standpoint, financially, it almost makes little to no sense to shop at certain retail locations, depending on what city and county they're in, because they get hit not only with the exercise tax, but a, a county tax as well. So it's kind of like a, almost a triple punch sometimes to the consumer, which from there, the way that we've kind of hit that niche, at least for us, is compounding on really good cannabis education and being very aware and up to date on the newest cannabis research and being able to articulate that to the guest or the patient. And sometimes the patient and the guest is welcome of that conversation. Some people that you'll hear it sometimes, I've been smoking longer than you've been alive. I don't want to hear what a terpene is. It always, it's always interesting to see how a consumer takes to that education. We've had a lot of guests as we've been operating the last year really say, hey, I really didn't know about anything outside of the major cannabinoid THC as opposed to the minor cannabinoids, terpenes and things like that. And that's where, yes, there's a lot of 
issues trying to operate a licensed facility out there, we're hitting the mark where guest education is putting us to the forefront, which is having more people instead of going to the legacy market, they'll shop at least once or twice with us. And our reoccurring customer data is in the last 90 days have been phenomenal and it's continued to, uh, to build up from that. But I mean, you can't ignore the elephant in the room. The legacy market is very alive and it's very no taxes <laughs> is it... right? no judgment and yep. then, oh, not gonna ask to see your id no security <laughs> might be a lot more dangerous and uh, quality oh cheaper don't forget that yep. and the quality might be same or same let's just leave it same and uh, it, that's a problem because then it really hurts the operator who has a license that's trying to play by the rules now you're hitting it with those taxes and the compliance costs. You, the person just has 40 bucks and wants a bag a week. Yep. Uh, that's it. And uh, you're creating a problem and it's been accepted and they aren't really like shutting it down too quickly, are they? It's not like the raids back in the 90s. How do they handle it? If you are selling weed without a license, do they arrest you? Do they ticket you? Do they fine you? What do they do? I'm originally from East LA, West Covina, California, Baldwin Park to be exact. And cannabis has always been a thing around it. Even when I visit California now, I've unbeknownst to myself walked into an unlicensed dispensary because they look almost very similar to a licensed shop. They have exactly what you think. And to be completely honest, in certain states, they actually have a better storefront than some licensed states. Wow. And I'm like, wow, this is interesting. And I've been able to talk to a few of them and they have said it is financially easier for us to get a lease on this storefront, do whatever modifications we need to get our product, get rated. We'll get a ticket and then find another lease and do it all over again before it makes financial sense for us to get a license. And I'm just going, okay, if that's the way that entrepreneurs in California are just like, not that big of a deal if I get this ticket and it's still going to make sense for me financially to continue to open stores. Mm -hmm. uh, the bigger problem is not so much the people that are wanting to be part of the industry. It's the financial barriers just to get in. And then that's an industry that fails. If you set up an industry like that, where it's like you have to do all these things, which you're required to do, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, you'll go broke. Why? Because all these other guys are just doing it. Yeah. And you're like, why aren't you stopping the other guys? We get write them a ticket. What do you mean you write them a ticket? There should be like fairly large penalty. And I, I'm not saying you throw them away in jail. I'm not. I'm saying it's like if you don't pay your taxes and you're evading them, maybe they do throw you in jail. I'm not, I still don't think we need to waste our money by throwing them in jail. We need to turn them into judgment debtors. That's what we need to do. They need to have a non-dischargeable judgment where they have to pay it back. And they're like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Why? I owe the freaking state $125,000 where if they're caught selling without a license, they're owed, they have to pay all the back taxes for all the cannabis that they sold. That might scare them a little bit, but they'll still do it anyway. <laughs> and it's hard watching generations of people that have been in the industry in California. And I've worked with some craft growers up in Northern California, heard some of their stories. They've been doing this for generations. And it's almost out of what they know. And, you know, 
30 years ago, they were getting raided by the FBI and the DEA for some outdoor grows. And now they're like, now if all I have to pay is a fine, I mean, that's fine for me. Progress right there. But it, <laughs> the, the problem really is that it's not federally legal because all that stuff, not all of it, a lot of that stuff that's cultivated over there in them hills is destined out east or south and or maybe even overseas. But that should be how it is when it's federally legal. That's you can go buy an outdoor farm right now in Humboldt, California for pretty much nothing. And if you have a business model that depends on you not having to sell the weed you grow, you might be able to make a decent business on it. But uh, that would be messed up, like having a cannabis farm to sell knowledge and ancillary services, SOPs, you know, how to actually do applications, consulting services. And what do you do with your crop? Well, we can't smoke. We're legally obligated to throw into a wood chipper. Uh, it's just so bizarre. But then if it became like Napa and you could have the appellation on it and we'll touch on the Gangier because like we're both involved in that, but you have now or Napa or Humboldt, you have Humboldt grown weed, which is internationally famous and you could export it and it could be a product that could go help those fifth generation farmers as opposed to this half in half out kind of game of, you know, jeopardy or gotcha that they're in because you really can't sell that crop and make money if you're playing by the rules and you don't maybe they don't mind paying the ticket i don't know and again california i always ask why when there's a new regulation did no one look at california and see what worked and what didn't work and it seems like 70 percent of them, yeah no not really everybody has their own best ideas yeah uh, the reason why it didn't work was because I hadn't come up with it yet. I think that's exactly what Chuck Schumer said when he was writing that whatever bill that he, he dropped last year. It wasn't that good. <laughs> it's that the chutzpah in it all is very prevalent. And I as a, the Gangier aspect on it. So I got mine back in 21 and it was great to go up to Humboldt and to see how it really is. And the more that you know about the cannabis plant, the least scared or the less scared you are of it. It's not like AI. It's the exact opposite. You're just, you, you love it more. And tell me about your experience with it. Cause mine was just great going up there and seeing that and going, it's terrible that this can't be sold as if it is Napa Valley wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my experience with the, the Gangier was when it first came out, working in so many States, I all, first thing I've always identified was, the misinformation and the lack of understanding of just the simplest cannabis products, right? You can almost go into certain shops and you'll hear a misdefinition of what a product is, especially within the concentrate or extract realm. And so when the Gangier first came out, I'll be completely honest, I was like, this is something that I I really want to jump into. I actually got accepted. I think the very first round was very interesting. Got to not only learn from some of those craft growers up in Humboldt. But it also coincided with a lot of the small farmers that I worked with in Oregon when I did wholesale out of there. So that Emerald Triangle extends out to Grants Pass, depending on where you're at. And uh, it was really insightful. Very, It gave me another understanding of the cannabis aspect from someone who's been doing this for multiple generations, multiple family members have come before them. 
And it, it put a lot of things in sight for me, especially the plight of the craft growers in California. And then on the educational aspect, it really gave, I would say it started to at least try to build a foundation of a cannabis knowledge. Now, watching how the industry has navigated, a few of them choose not to say that foundation isn't the best foundation. And then you have people go, what about this? And what about this? And all I'm asking as someone who operates in multiple states and also looking at the international effect of cannabis is someone needs to create a, just a baseline of mm-hmm. what our cannabis education is, right? If you go to any other industry, you have hospitality, you have surf safe, right? You go to bars and restaurants, depending on the state, you have to have an alcohol training. Here it's called like a TAM card, but you essentially have to be trained to even serve or operate in a, a alcohol nope. dispensing location. So it's always interesting to watch all these other states, which some of them, their training is, do you have a pulse? Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. Go ahead and run this register. And it's, it hinders the cannabis industry as a whole because they're interacting with uh, maybe someone who may travel and that's their start to cannabis. And so for me, I enjoyed the aspect and what the, uh, the bigger ideology of it, of it all. I did take away a lot of really good, interesting information and i did make some good connections i'm also waiting for the industry to understand that there needs to be a body or a baseline for everybody in this industry and mm. uh, maybe one day we'll get there it still seems like there's still mixed feelings on all courses like the ganjier to be completely honest there's mixed feelings on anything and so that's the consensus doesn't mean it, it's a hundred percent. If we can get 70, 80% so that it can make sense and that we could work and it could be practical and we can actually do interstate commerce. The federal regulations that we've seen proposed, the statutes that we've seen proposed, they're terrible in the sense that they would just make things worse because they increase compliance costs and taxes, which doesn't necessarily help the smaller upstarts in it. And it's just amazing how much self-congratulatory lauding that the politicians will give themselves for putting these unworkable bills forward. But we do need something because how do you say what's good and standardize it? Number two, yellow corn grows really well where I'm at. There's no such thing as number two yellow corn for cannabis. And so what's grade A? What's grade B? Where's mids? Where's boof? What's outdoor? How do we quantify those, grade them, and price them so that the growers can then use like other agricultural growers have? They have insurance products. They have uh, contracts to purchase their products as well, or their crops. So grain marketing contracts are really popular over where I'm at. And that doesn't exist for the cannabis industry. If I'm of the opinion that most commercial cultivators probably aren't all that great. And then uh, 25% of them are freaking amazing. Um, But it's just such an interesting and new conundrum that we all have to deal with and solve. But we see it from a lens of making all this money, whether for ourselves, our community, our teams. And do we then self-deal in the legislation? So like True Leaf in Florida, for example, is like the biggest example of that. But yeah, I'm all for trying to figure out how we can put together some types of standards that say this is what we're supposed to be doing. 
yeah. yeah, that's why I like the Ganjier as well. I thought it was great and a wonderful experience. And to, to learn, and because when it's something is illegal, you tend not to learn about it. <laughs> I didn't major in murder at college. Murder is illegal, by the way. It's not like a, a major. And now you see, hear kids like saying, oh, and Greenflower Media, which is behind the Gantier, is really responsible for, for a lot of these educational courses that are now taught at community colleges and actually online colleges and state colleges now, which is great. They're getting their certificate in this thing that's a federal crime, which is just like uh, from a standpoint of being a person who's like kind of rational and happens to be trapped where they are in time and space and just looking at it and going like, wait, you got to be fucking kidding me. There's this law that says you're not allowed to do this. And then there's this company that's profiting off of saying, here's how you do it. <laughs> and then these state universities are going, sure, bro, let's do this. And they're majoring in it. No freaking way. This is nuts. Where are we? Yeah. Yeah, I believe I saw there's another university. I think it's the University of Maryland that's also offering a master's in cannabis. I think it's the biology or the botany of it. But I, I saw that and I was like, this is, uh, this is amazing. Oh, yes. And then eventually they'll all be degraded or downgraded to just agronomists. They'll just all be agronomists in the future. It's like, oh, where'd you get a major in agronomy? Of course, but right now it's so cool and interesting and ironic and perplexing in the sense that it's like, what do you mean? That, that, that degree that you got is a federal crime. Yeah, technically the degree that I got is a federal crime. And it's fun because that's what I do for a living. I, tell, I remind people this like when I've just met them and they don't know who I am. I'm like, what do you do for a living? I'm not really proud of this, but I commit federal crimes professionally. And the feds aren't going to shut me down, by the way. <laughs> I think you brought up a good point, right? All these education, these universities for having cannabis be a schedule one drug for so long, it has created this, I would say this education or just the knowledge vacuum. And then once it started to be socially acceptable, I think the, instead of getting your cannabis education from your cousin's dad, who used to be a grower, who heard one time this one story, it really, at least for me, it really incited, I really want to know about cannabis because the only reference point I had prior to that was the D.A.R.E. commercials, right? They had the, <laughs> the, the people that were deflated. Yeah. Yeah. The brains yeah. on Good Put on his facts. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, it was, it was a whole new world. And I, I really jumped in with my feet first, completely mm. honest. I took a dive. And I think there are some people in the educational side of cannabis training I've also put a lot of money on my external education and I've mm. took some courses that were thousands of dollars and I'm like, I paid thousands of dollars for this. What the hell are we doing here? And I think that's the law school too. <laughs> I think that's a hard part for people that want to be educated properly, that there's a lot of people that are putting out courses, which maybe have little to no basis. And then now that kind of turns that person off. Um, yeah. What did I learn about cannabis? I didn't learn anything. So there's nothing to learn about it. So it's very interesting. That's where I'm very big in doing community outreach. I'm speaking to senior homes and actually patients that have had early onset dementia to talk about mm -hmm. how cannabis can, I, can at least help. Or again, not speaking in generalizations, but seeing some patient success stories help them with certain symptoms of Alzheimer's. Yeah. 
that's at least something that I, I at least try to do just to, to get the kind of cannabis word out without someone having to spend five to six thousand dollars just to be educated properly about cannabis yeah you can get it that's also the problem with the illegality of it all and the lack of knowledge that when you try to make those claims and you're not careful about how you do it the fda will send you a dunning letter and it's like yeah stop doing that and they do that all the time in the cbd industry it'll be interesting to see if they do that in this thc industry and then so you put these bud tenders and you give them this knowledge and it's all Ayurvedic medicine or like traditional ancient Chinese secret medicine because you can't say that it's real stuff because it's illegal. If it was real stuff, it wouldn't be Schedule 1. By its own nature, it has to be false under the law that is still in effect right now. It's the When I look at it, it's a huge relic. I'm like, we're so much smarter than this now. But then as it stands around, I'm like, we are dumb, dumb as hell. I'm just scared yeah and that's in certain states that i've operated in there's also legal regulations that you can't even speak out outside of your own experience and that was very prevalent in seattle you could only speak of what a cannabis product or a strain has done for you so you had to speak in i statement so you would have to consultate with a guest and be like for me this helps with my insomnia and this really helps me to really get to bed and lawyers were totally involved in that regulation by the way (laughs) i just hear that and i'm like they're like they lawyered that fda we can't say it does this no if if it did that it shouldn't be what if we say to me it did oh then it's just present impression okay yeah i like that (laughs) it's always interesting because then you'll go into certain dispensaries and people are just talking in just weird terms like oh i've heard and things of this nature and it's like wow i wish we could really just talk about what the possible benefits are and yeah yeah regulation can definitely throw a a hindrance and a hurdle into a lot of guest interactions for sure absolutely and i could do this and it's been great talking with you jeff for a minute we've been going for almost an hour let's get into the best stuff about it as if we're going to have a good conclusion here and so what is something that makes you tap dance to work in the morning or that you just love about your job in the cannabis industry because it's one of the growing industries in our country and a lot of people that work in it love working in it sometimes they get this solution that they burn out but you've been in it now for six years seven years that means you've made it through that burnout kind of window what do you love about working in cannabis yeah for me again it's a cornerstone for me is cannabis really helped me when I didn't even know I needed it. Unbeknownst to myself, I was dealing with undiagnosed survivor's guilt from the Marine Corps when I first enlisted in high school. And at that time, mental health wasn't a big topic that we talked about, at least not where I was raised or how I came up. So cannabis really started to bridge holistic alternative practices for me with also mental health. And when I actually started seeing other people speak on their own experience and how it helped them, it made me where I once felt very helpless on what the future looked like. And again, losing a lot of friends to their battle with PTSD, depression, alcoholism, opiates, and then finding out that cannabis could be a very viable solution for them. That made me do a 180 in what I was doing, which was running bars and restaurants at the time. And 
it really made me want to go all in. And that's, that started not only cannabis education, but learning more about cannabis, giving a deeper insight to what cannabis could do for somebody, or if it even is for them, right? Again, I don't believe cannabis is for everybody, but it should be a, an option if they choose to utilize it. And then now in the day and age, which is also very eerie to say sometimes in my own personal studies, cannabis opening the door to plant medicine with other states talking about other plant medicines like psilocybin and other things. It just kind of has put me on this thing where 10, 20 years ago, this wasn't a conversation we'd be having, at least not in public. And I've also mm -hmm. known family members that have been incarcerated or fined for just having small amounts of cannabis. And now we're openly talking about how we like to consume consumption lounges, possible benefits. And then there's some states talking about other plant medicines. It, for me, I'm <laughs> with economic world when we have, yeah, it's crazy. But in the alternative side of what could these plant medicines be beneficial for mental health, that's what really gets me excited because I didn't know how much cannabis was helping me until I started to put the pieces together. And now I just kind of impart some of that information that I've acquired by trial and error, to be completely honest. So that makes me tap dance to work because I know some of my friends don't have the opportunity to be here. And uh, that kind of puts a lot of things in perspective. Yes, it does. And it's, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some wisdom about how it is to operate Planet 13 and be a part of their team and the challenges that is inherent in running businesses in highly regulated states. How can people get in touch with you? Of course. So I'm most active currently right now on LinkedIn. You can find me right there. And then also social media, Instagram. But currently right now, my main platform is LinkedIn at the moment. Awesome. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm uh, Tom Howard, probably attorney. I think if you search that in LinkedIn, I may come up. And if you are in the industry and you've made it this far into this podcast, thank you so much. Don't forget to click and subscribe. And then if you are also in the industry and want to share your story, get in touch with us and maybe you can come on an episode in 420 somewhere in the future and talk about how it is to work in the legal cannabis industry. And now, because it is a 420 somewhere episode, we will leave you with this.